Welcome to Mexico Matters, the CSIS podcast about how events occurring in Mexico can impact and more importantly, matter in the United States. I am Mariana Campero, non-resident senior associate of the Americas program at CSIS and the former CEO of the Mexican Council on Foreign Relations, COMEXI. Migrants are streaming to the U.S.-Mexico border and the media, right and left, is filling our screens with images of children and families crossing illegally. The truth is that more than 170,000 migrants were caught just in March, the highest in nearly 20 years. And there are estimates that these numbers could hit even new records. To discuss the causes of the recent spike and to explain the importance of Mexican cooperation in this matter, that I welcome Ambassador Andres Rosenthal, former Deputy Foreign Minister of Mexico, and Ryan Berg, Senior Fellow at the Americas Program here at CSIS. Immigration has become a national concern in the U.S., and most Americans, no matter where they fall in the political spectrum, basically agree with the need for the U.S. to have the ability to control its migration and to secure its own borders. Thus far, the handling of this issue by President Biden is disapproved by 55% of Americans, according to Pew. It is his worst polling issue. Ryan, can you briefly explain the recent migration spike and are the policies of the Biden administration to blame? Great. Thank you, Mariana, for having me on the Mexico Matters podcast. It's a pleasure to be here with you and also with Ambassador Rosenthal. While it's difficult to parse out exactly how much the Biden administration's posture is contributing to migratory flows in the region, it is indisputable that the, the administration's posture is different than the prior administration. They've undertaken a review of asylum policies in the United States, They've increased in recent days the number of refugees that they will admit. They've had a, an executive order that's going to stop the construction of a border wall between the United States and Mexico. They've ended through executive order migrant protection protocols, which is the formal name for what we call informally Remain in Mexico program, which uh, essentially metered arrivals of migrants that wanted to make asylum claims in the United States. They've also ended perhaps the most draconian and controversial of the previous administration's policies, which was family separation, which saw children uh, separated from families. What they haven't done so far is rescind a so-called Title 42, which is a public health law that essentially allows for the expulsion of migrant families on the basis of the public health crisis in the United States of COVID-19. And so that does remain in place and has uh, proven to be uh, one of the main tools of the, the Biden administration for sending migrants back, although notably they've made, a, they've made an exception for unaccompanied children who, who arrive at the border with, without families. So the combination of these more humane policies, together with deep and long-lasting causes in the region like violence, natural disasters, lack of jobs, all of these were made even worse by the economic and health crisis due to the pandemic, by the way, and a backlog from the last year's shutdown. Are we seeing a perfect storm? Well, there's certainly a lot going on in Central America, but historically we've also seen patterns of migration are cyclical. And so there's usually an uptick around this time of the year as well. And the reason I've seen uh, to explain that is that the, the desert is more arid, it's more navigable at this time of year, and the journey is, is less arduous 
although still quite arduous, than it is normally. And so there is a, a cyclical element to this. Uh, but there is also uh, certainly a lot going on in Central America, as you mentioned, violence and insecurity, natural disaster, climate change that's ruining agricultural production and the ability of uh, migrants to have livelihoods and uh, predatory gangs, insecurity, you name it. There's a lot going on in Central America right now. We share a 2,000-mile border. We certainly have to work together not only to have a secure border, but also to manage the people at the border, the people coming into Mexico from our own southern border, among many other issues that are in the interest of both countries. Ambassador Rosenthal, how is Mexico supporting the United States on this issue? Thank you, Mariana, and thank you for having me on uh, your Mexico Matters podcast. Obviously, the United States needs Mexico, and Mexico needs the United States for a whole series of issues. It's not just the issue of the border, it's not just migration, it's trade, it's economy, it's a lot of things. But in the case of, of the border, and particularly in the case of managing what I would call security at the border, and that includes making sure that people who cross the border do so in an orderly and legal way, and that the border does not become a no man's land for criminals and for organized crime. And I think that this is something which has been recognized by Mexican governments uh, for the past decades. It's not something new. Perhaps what's new is the are the numbers of Central Americans who are coming through Mexico to get to the United States. What did Mexico agree to do with the Trump administration? Now, what Mexico agreed to do back in the Trump administration was to, one, put as much as it is able to put, which is unfortunately not very much because it doesn't have either the human or the financial resources to stop people at our southern border, that is the border with Guatemala and Belize, to cross into Mexico when their primary objective was to get to the United States. And the second thing it agreed to do, and something which was very polemic at the time, and fortunately it has been to some extent rescinded now by the Biden administration, was the Remain in Mexico or Migration Protection Protocol, as it was euphemistically called, where people who managed to put a foot into the United States to request uh, asylum or to request the ability to stay in the United States had to return to Mexico, to the Mexican side of the border, and wait for their adjudication in the United States, something which could take months and in some cases even years. Is collaboration any different now? Collaboration between the two countries can be very different. I must say that during the Trump administration, the López Obrador administration was quite able and, and agreeable to collaborate in those two ways, that is to try to secure the southern border, the Mexican southern border, and to receive thousands of migrants who uh, wanted to get into the United States and then had to wait on the Mexican side. Also there, the lack of resources and the lack of infrastructure was extremely clear, and people were suffering, and there were a great number of individuals who were living in what I would call subhumane conditions on the Mexican side of the border. So this uh, government, the López Obrador administration, 
also has, at least rhetorically, said that it wants to collaborate with the United States to help that country cope with the uh, caravans or groups of migrants coming from Central America. What is the composition of the people trying to cross the border right now? It's not just Central Americans who are looking to go to the United States. Increasing numbers of Mexicans, given the pandemic, given the economic disaster in Mexico, given the lack of jobs. Many Mexicans who in recent years were probably happy to stay in Mexico and get their jobs and, and live in Mexico are now again looking to go to the United States. And then from outside of our immediate region, uh, you have Africans and uh, Haitians and uh, Cubans and all sorts of people who are using Mexico as the gateway to get to the United States. Now, the Biden administration has made a series of changes that Ryan mentioned in terms of their policies regarding how to deal with asylum requests, refugee numbers, H-1 visas, and other things. But it is still insufficient in order to keep the migratory flows down to what I would call manageable numbers. Ambassador, Mexico is struggling to handle the large numbers of families expelled under Title 42. Just to give you an idea, only in March, the CBP carried out more than 600,000 of this. And there are more than 70,000 asylum seekers already waiting in Mexico. How will this change? They have, little by little, as, as the Biden administration began, made uh, an effort for more and more of these groups of people to go to the U.S. and have their adjudication and then stay in the U.S. for whatever time it takes for the adjudication to be resolved. Now, as you know, many of these uh, cases are given a negative decision and then these people are deported either back to Mexico or to their home country in the case of some of the Central Americans. And Mexico is also collaborating on that, uh, on that sphere because we have over many years now agreed with the United States to fly deportees back from the border to the interior of Mexico, at least Mexican deportees. And uh, that, to some extent, has relieved the pressure on the border itself. The family separation program, ironically, was interpreted as a welcome sign by would-be migrants and smugglers. Brian, can you explain why? Well, I think that the what the uh, Biden administration is trying to do now was always going to be a difficult proposition, which is to say they would like to have a different set of policies for migration at the border and, and take down some of that architecture that was built by the prior administration while simultaneously sending a message of deterrence. You've heard the president time and again say, now is not the time to come. That was also something that the vice president was saying as well in, in multiple forums. And in fact, the administration has uh, spent a good deal of money on something like 30,000 advertisements in local newspapers and also in various languages, Spanish, Portuguese, and a variety of indigenous languages, trying to send that same deterrent message that now is not the time to come. So far, we haven't seen those ads hitting home. And we've seen that, as I mentioned, that the difficulty of sort of changing posture and yet still sending a message that now is not the time to come is an incredibly difficult 
thing to do. And even if it's the case, as Ambassador Rosenthal said, that quite a few of these cases will be adjudicated negatively, the change in posture is still interpreted by some in the region as a, as a welcome sign to come. And more importantly, I think it's interpreted by coyotes or human smugglers who sometimes charge upwards of $10,000 to smuggle someone to the border from Central America. It's used as part of the messaging campaign that now is the time to come. As we've said, it is estimated that the number of migrants can reach an all-time high this year. The CBP actually estimated that more than 2 million people could arrive at the border this year. If we do see 2 million arrivals, even if many of their cases are adjudicated negatively, as Ambassador Rosenthal said, 2 million arrivals would be about double the amount of immigrants the United States, United States takes in on a yearly basis. Just to give listeners a sense of how many people that actually is. Of course, the United States absorbs quite a few uh, immigrants on a yearly basis. It's, a, it's about 1 million or so. But this would be double the number of, of immigrants the United States absorbs on a yearly basis, just to give listeners a sense of, of how many folks are uh, actually coming. And as Ambassador said, you know, the profile is changing. Since January, you know, 45% are from Central America, but somewhere around 40, 41% are from Mexico. So we've seen an uptick in Mexican arrivals as well. And that's definitely been a, a new development since January of this year. Ambassador Rosenthal, can you explain to us what is happening in Mexico and why are we seeing this new wave of Mexican migrants? I think it's clear that the Mexican economy has been one of those that has most suffered uh, over the last uh, two years. First, the economy was already doing poorly at the outset of the López Obrador administration. And of course, the pandemic, uh, COVID, has made it much worse. Today, we were just given the numbers for the first quarter of this year, and Mexico has zero growth for the first three months of this, zero economic growth for the first three months of this year. Now, previously, before 2018, we were growing, we weren't growing spectacularly, but Mexico's economy was growing at an average of about 2% a year. And that gave many Mexicans opportunities, opportunities for employment and opportunities for work in Mexico with either uh, domestic or foreign companies. And that now has dried up pretty much. So once again, we are in the cyclical moment of a bad Mexican economy and a very booming U.S. economy since the Biden administration has taken over with the fiscal stimulus and everything else. So people are again trying to hire in the U.S. and Mexicans who are wishing to find a better life and the higher uh, wages and things like that are moving towards the United States in increasing numbers. This has happened cyclically over many, many decades in the relationship. It's not really new, but we had arrived at a moment in which the net inflows and outflows were pretty much even. So we didn't have large numbers of Mexicans as we had had in the past uh, trying to get into the, to the United States. Now, Again, I think the contraction of last year of the economy, which was 8.5% negative, 
the zero we've had for the first quarter of this year, I think will clearly mean that there will be more Mexicans trying to get to the United States in the immediate future. Is there something that Mexico and the United States could do to regulate all of these Mexican migrants? Those people, as befits to partners in economic, trade, uh, investment, and other areas under the first NAFTA and now the uh, TMEC, USMCA, should be able to agree on a way in which we can take advantage of these cycles. And when there are demands in the United States and offers in Mexico, that people should be able to go get a job and then come home, which is what I think most Mexicans would like to do. The big difference that took place over the last uh, two decades is that the United States policy made it so difficult for people to come and go that at the end of the day, the migrants who used to come and go pretty freely today stay in the United States because it's very difficult to come back, to come back into the U.S. So I think that that's the reason why the Biden administration has decided to push for a very comprehensive immigration reform to Congress. Hopefully it'll be successful, or at least parts of it will be successful. And uh, that should help in terms of the Mexicans. On the side of the Central Americans, as Ryan said, it's a very much more complicated issue. Not only are the Central American Northern Triangle countries living a drought, a very severe drought, hurricanes, natural disasters, organized crime, and the government corruption. So for them, leaving their countries to try to get to another country, whether it's Mexico or the United States, is almost a matter of life and death, which is not the case with Mexicans. Various U.S. presidents have tried to pass some kind of immigration reform, including President Bush, who, by the way, recently published a book highlighting the value of migrants. Ryan, in today's political environment, what do you think could actually get done? Ooh, that's a really tough question, Mariana, because unfortunately, I say unfortunate because I, I think that the migration and immigration situation in the United States has been has been securitized in a way that it used to be sort of economized, right? We used to look at migrants as the drivers of, of economic growth and vitality, new ideas, regeneration of the United States and, and so forth. And now they're looked at more in the security lens. And that makes it difficult to, to move the needle on the domestic front. And so I see perhaps a narrow way to, to pass immigration reform. I don't see comprehensive necessarily in the near future. As, as the ambassador mentioned, the, the Biden administration has put a comprehensive immigration reform forward. I think that there might be a pathway for, uh, say, a, a more narrow agreement between Republicans and Democrats. But the, the makeup of the Senate in its current form, which is to say 50-50, with Vice President Harris casting the deciding uh, vote, makes it quite difficult for Democrats to get comprehensive reform passed, so long as they don't bring at least 10 Republicans on board to break any sort of filibuster threat. And so under the current conditions, I, I don't think that a comprehensive in the, in the way that the Biden administration has laid out will pass. But the, it is possible that something a little bit narrower could pass on one, two, maybe three issues that are presented in the comprehensive bill. Ambassador, 
A lot has been spoken about a de facto quid pro quo between the Lopez Obrador administration and the Biden administration. I give you vaccines and you help me with migration. Regardless of whether it was true or not, do you think vaccines can be used as leverage to encourage Lopez Obrador and others to agree to certain things important to the United States? Mariana, I think that the relationship between the two countries has always been to some extent, a quid pro quo. And uh, as you say, regardless as to whether there was a formal agreement in that sense or not, it's clear that there are issues which Mexico would like to see the U.S. take care of, and there are issues which the U.S. wants Mexico to take care of or to change. Obviously, today, migration for the Biden administration is the number one priority, which I think they would like Mexico to do more in helping stop the Central American movements across the Mexican southern border and even help to stop the movements across the U.S.'s southern border. Mexico has other priorities, I think, fundamentally traffic of arms, which is one of the problems which Mexico has had to face over the last decades. And those guns and those uh, weapons eventually end up in the hands of of criminals in Mexico. And that's, uh, to some extent, the reason for the very high homicide rates that we have in the country. But there are other issues. There are trade issues, which are also, to some extent, seen as a quid pro quo. There are environmental issues now. Uh, the Biden administration is particularly keen on uh, dealing with climate change and the environment. And the Lopez Obrador administration has, to some extent, opposing points of view regarding what it wants to do in the energy sector. And then there are the other issues in the bilateral relationship, uh, which are too numerous to mention, but they, there are almost no Americans and almost no Mexicans that are not to one degree or another affected by the U.S.-Mexico relationship. And so therefore, I think it's always been to some extent a quid pro quo, And the Lopez Obrador administration wanted vaccines because uh, it was unable to procure all of the vaccines that it had originally contracted for, given the uh, problems of supply. And the U.S. has and had a big surplus of AstraZeneca vaccines because it had they haven't been approved yet by the FDA. And so Mr. Biden decided that, uh, you know, two and a half million doses to Mexico and one and a half million to Canada was something that could be done. So I think, you know, it, it was clear that Mexico wanted something, the U.S. wanted something. So Lopez Obrador agreed in principle. And I, I keep saying in principle because I know for a fact that we do not have the means to fulfill all of the commitments that have been made in terms of policing and securing our southern border. Ambassador, can you describe the conditions in Mexico's southern border? Our southern border is tremendously porous and very difficult to secure. And if you think about the billions and billions and billions of dollars that the U.S. has spent over the decades to secure its border with Mexico, unsuccessfully in most cases, then you can imagine that a poorer country like Mexico that does not have the human or the financial resources to do the same things that the U.S. has done is going to be in a much poorer situation. 
Vice President Kamala Harris has said that she plans to use diplomatic efforts to slow this migration. She's meeting uh, with presidents of Mexico and Guatemala, and she has said that her goal is to focus on the root causes. Just to put this in context, nominal GDP per capita in the Northern Triangle countries is between two and a half and 5,000 a year. The three countries combined have a population of around 34 million. And as we've said, they're plagued by violence, droughts, hurricane, and corrupt governments. Will the $4 billion program announced to help Central America be enough? Solving the challenges in Central America are not easy and there are no quick fixes. This is something that the United States, through both Republican and Democrat administrations, has been trying to do through various iterations, in a lot of ways through aid and big programs that usually have billions of dollars of appropriations. And we've seemed to end up in the same spot each time. And that is with uh, countries that are plagued by security, corruption concerns, economic growth concerns, private sectors that are not the generators of formal sector employment as as they are in, in, in other parts of the world. So we haven't been able to affect the type of broad-based change that we would like to in, in Central America. You mentioned GDP per capita. There's an interesting paper that's uh, much discussed in the Central American context done by a, a think tank in Germany on labor economics. It basically says that $8,000 per capita is the, the number at which usually we observe a decline in emigration from countries where folks decide that they don't need to emigrate to, uh, to achieve livelihood. And we're at two and a half to 5,000 uh, nominal GDP per capita, as you mentioned, in most countries in the Northern Triangle, Central America. So we have a long ways to go just on the economic front, not to mention the other array of issues that we've discussed in this, in this conversation. So The U.S. is going to try, as it always has, as it did with the Alliance for Prosperity and with other administrations before that in the Bush administration. Obviously, there was a a wide-ranging free trade agreement that was signed, CAFTA-DR, which gave about 80 or 90 percent of all goods from the region tariff-free access to the largest consumer market in the world. And so we've tried a number of approaches, you know, the the free trade approach, the the aid approach with skin in the game, and and of course, asking for changes in quality of governance and and anti-corruption and and some measures to reduce uh, violence and insecurity. And yet still, we're, you know, we have this extreme challenge in Central America. It's just, I think it's really one of the hardest nuts to crack in, in the entire region. The picture really seems quite bleak. Ambassador, are you optimistic? No, I'm not very optimistic, to be honest with you. I think Ryan has clearly pointed out the difficulties and the challenges. Over the years, you know, there have been many efforts by Mexico, by the U.S., by the international community in general to try to give the Central American countries the type of governments that they need and the type of economic growth and ability to receive foreign investment and so on that would immediately affect the ability of the people there to be employed and to and to prosper. It is clear that during the Trump administration, for example, the aid programs that were earmarked uh, for Central America were either uh, eliminated or drastically reduced. The 
decision by the Trump administration to say that the best way for uh, the Central American countries to grow their economies was for private investment to invest uh, there. That didn't happen. The Biden administration has now said the same thing. I don't think it's going to happen either, just like it doesn't happen in the southern part of Mexico, the poorer and southern part of Mexico. It's very difficult. It's a chicken and egg situation. You need infrastructure to invest. And if you don't have investment, you don't have with what to build the infrastructure. And so in spite of the fact that Lopez Obrador is favoring the poorer southern part of Mexico with some of his pet projects, most of them are not big employers, at least not when they will be finished in terms of being built. And they will not really detonate the southern part of Mexico's economy. What can be done then? I think the only thing really that can be done is for all of the obstacles and tariff barriers, non-tariff barriers, investment obstacles and so on that exist today to either be removed or to be mitigated in such a way as to make the southern part of Mexico and the rest of and the northern part of Central America attractive to investors. Otherwise, it won't happen. It just will not happen. And the root causes, as they're called today, will continue. Poverty, crime, corruption, weak governments, and uh, all of the other issues that push Central Americans to move away from where they are and push poorer Mexicans also to move away. Now, in Mexico, we have one advantage, and that is that the northern part of our country is prosperous and grows at much higher rates than the southern part of the country. So uh, domestic migration, that is Mexicans who want to work in the northern part of Mexico, can do so, obviously, easily, and meet growing job requirements and so on once the economy begins to grow again. But as long as our economy isn't growing nationally, there are going to be very few opportunities. And therefore, the pull factor into the United States is going to be even greater as the United States economy does as well as projections are for it to do now. No doubt, having a trustful and cooperative relationship between the United States and Mexico will be key. But the Lopez Obrador administration as you've said, has already affected billions in U.S. investments as well as other U.S. interests. What can we expect from this relationship now? Thank you, Mariana. Well, I'm hopeful, but I'm not optimistic. I think that it's not so much that the relationship between the two presidents themselves didn't start well because AMLO didn't recognize or congratulate Biden on his election until late in the game and so on. But I think there are a lot of other issues which are on the bilateral agenda today where the Mexican government is doing everything it possibly can to negatively affect the relationship, for example, between the U.S. private sector and Mexico. We have billions and billions of dollars of private sector investment in Mexico from the United States. And everything that López Obrador is doing and his cabinet and the Congress is all basically designed and is actually doing harm to the investments that American companies have made in Mexico, whether in the energy sector or in the mining sector 
or in, in any of the sectors. And I, I think that the, the relationship is now going to be on the basis of a cumulative growth of irritants that the AMLO administration is putting between us. And those irritants, as they grow and accumulate, will eventually, I think, take us back to the type of relationship that we had pre-NAFTA, finger-pointing, saying that the U.S. is an imperial power trying to take over Mexican resources, things of that sort, which fortunately, beginning with the uh, Lopez Portillo and the Salinas administrations, uh, began to be subsumed into a much more collaborative and mutually beneficial relationship. Today, I think the relationship is, from the Mexican point of view, Mexican government point of view, no longer one of a collaborative nature in all of those sectors, but rather one in which the Mexican government has decided that it is going to roll back the energy reform. It's going to roll back a lot of the things that opened Mexico up to U.S., further U.S. investment. And that has a lot of American companies and private sector organizations very worried, as it does have them worried in Mexico as well. But I think that this is going to be something that in the coming years, at least during the rest of the uh, Lopez Obrador administration, which still has three years plus to go, is going to become increasingly complicated and will increasingly negatively affect the relationship. And that will spill over, as it always does, into issues that are not directly related to what I've been talking about, but issues like trade and investment and migration. Ryan, as Ambassador Rosenthal just said, Mexico has certainly taken a radical shift from the last four decades. How are the other partners in the region? We have very difficult partners in the region. We have in Guatemala, a country that is currently refusing to seat a magistrate on the Supreme Court who's, who's known for anti-corruption efforts. We have in Honduras a, a president that is linked to no fewer than, than two or three ongoing investigations in the United States, linking him to, uh, to narcotics trafficking. His brother was just convicted of narcotics trafficking. And in El Salvador, we have a president who has shown worrying levels of autocratic tendencies, such as you know, bringing the army into, uh, into the National Assembly and, and threatening votes, even threatening a member of the United States Congress on one occasion in a social media spat. And this is to say nothing of, of, of the dictatorship that we're all watching worryingly in Nicaragua. So the region itself doesn't have uh, or doesn't present you know, great partners for the United States to work with. And that is uh, another overlay here when we talk about the challenges to getting Central America on a better footing. Ryan, is there a conscious effort in the United States about what is happening in Mexico and about what should be the strategy to deal and hopefully even reverse some of these trends? I fear that the United States government is not taking the challenge seriously enough. It's not thinking enough about how to rescue the relationship if indeed there is a way to do so, or if rescue is too strong a word, then at least to decrease some of these irritants that the, that the ambassador spoke about. Because I think what we've seen under Andres Manuel López Obrador is the real paradigm shift 
where the United States government is still operating to a certain extent under the assumption that Mexico sees further integration in quite a few areas as in its best interest. The paradigm shift under AMLO, of course, being a willingness to buck that idea. And I don't think people have caught up yet to what's going on in Mexico. And two more irritants that I'll mention that, that could possibly be you know, on the table for, for management uh, that the ambassador didn't mention. First, water rights. That'll be something that we'll see pop up probably a few more times under this, uh, the current president's uh, sexenio, as well as security. Security is the big issue that, that we did uh, discuss in, in this podcast with respect to bilateral relations. Unfortunately, on that not very optimistic note, we have come to the end of this podcast. And certainly Mexico is heading in the wrong direction. And it is in the interest of the United States not to reduce the relationship to only this one issue of migration. Our supply chains, our competitiveness, our security, the environment, and many other U.S. interests and investments depend on it. I am Mariana Campero. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog of 